0: James' focus in the second half of chapter 1 is upon the scriptures, the word of truth, the perfect law of liberty. The word of truth is the implanted seed which produces the new birth. And having received the new birth, we must accept and apply the word of truth to our lives. Unfortunately, some of James' original readers, and even many today, only go so far with the word of truth. Hence, James exhorts all of us, not just to be hearers, but doers of the word as well. And doing the word means conforming our lives to the perfect law of liberty. Now in James 1, 26-27, he provides an application of this truth. In doing so, James reveals the difference between genuine or true and false religion. James' point is that true religion is doing God's law. James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In verses 26 and 27, James introduces the terms religious and religion. He begins with a first-class conditional phrase, if anyone thinks. Now, a first-class conditional statement or phrase assumes the statement to be true. As such, the if can be translated as since. The anyone refers to James' original readers, Jewish believers. And the verb think Dokeo means to have a settled opinion. In other words, James is writing to believers who believe that they are religious. Now the term religion, threskia, refers to the worship of a deity. Kurt Richardson states that religion is the external, observable qualities of a life of faith in Christ. The term religious, threskos. Denotes someone who is pious or devout. Those who are religious, threskas, live according to a set of divinely prescribed tenets or laws. See, biblical Christianity is a religion because it involves the reverential worship of the one true God. As well, Christians are religious because God has commanded them to walk according to his laws. Now, I know it's popular for many of you to say, I've got a relationship and not a religion. James says you either have a worthless religion or you have a pure and undefiled religion. Now, James' ability to write about religion and religious duty is due to his faithfulness to God's law. Remember, he was known as Jacob or James the Just. As an example of his faithfulness, consider James' response to the false accusations that Paul was teaching the Jews and Gentiles to forsake the law. Acts 21, 21, and 24. And they have been told about you, Paul, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, i.e., the law. Take them, purify yourselves along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, And all will know that there is nothing to the things which have been told about you, but that you yourselves also walk orderly, keeping the law. There James admonished Paul to join in a purification ceremony for four men who had taken a Nazarite vow and pay their expenses. By doing so, it would demonstrate that Paul was indeed righteous and obedient to God's law. If God's law was annulled, why were James and the elders so concerned by the accusations that Paul was preaching against the law. Evidently, God's law had not been annulled or repealed. So when James refers to religion and being religious, he is speaking with authority. His point is that true or genuine religion is found in obedience to God's perfect law of liberty. As well then, a lack of obedience to God's law would demonstrate disingenuous religion. As James stated in verse 26 and 27, there is worthless religion and true religion that is pure and undefiled. The term worthless, matias, in verse 26 means empty, futile, or fruitless. The translators of the Septuagint use the term mateos for idols or idolatry. In other words, some religions are futile and some religious people are fruitless. They're all show and no substance. Their righteousness is nothing more than self-righteousness and all their self-righteous living and professions of worship are nothing more than idolatry. The term pure... Katharos in verse 27, means unsoiled or unalloyed. To be pure, katharos, is to be free from moral corruption or unstained by immorality. Undefiled, amiantos, also means to be free from stain or blemish. Together, the phrase pure and undefiled is an idiom for absolute purity. It conveys the idea of chasteness by conforming to a moral code. And in this case, the moral code for believers is the perfect law of liberty, God's law. Now depending on the context, the phrase pure and undefiled can be translated as acceptable to God or good in God's eyes. So there is a religion that is acceptable to God or good in God's eyes. The idea of being acceptable to God or good in God's eyes resulted in the translation of the Greek preposition para as in the sight of. In the phrase, in the sight of our God and Father. The preposition itself means before, as demonstrated in Romans 2.13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before para God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The idea of before our God and Father, means that true religion must be in conformity to a divine standard, and that standard is God. As God, He evaluates our religious practices, and as a Father, He does it with our best interest in mind. And God has revealed His standard in His Word, specifically in the law. Hence, religion that is acceptable in God's sight is free from moral corruption and conforms to God's law. Such religion is true or genuine. Friends, we would do well to examine whether our religion is worthless or true. That is, acceptable in God's sight. Now, James sets forth the proposition that true religion is doing God's law. As such, he presents three examples to support his proposition. True religion controls the tongue, is concerned for the helpless, and constrains worldliness. These three examples are not the only requirements of true religion. There are many other requirements, but James chooses to focus on these three. Most likely, these three examples were areas which James' original readers struggled. And as such, James focuses the remainder of his epistle on these three examples. In chapter 2, for example, he discusses care for the helpless. In chapter 3, he deals with controlling the tongue. And in chapter 4, he develops the example of constraining worldliness. And by the way, these three examples form the sixth triad that James employs in his epistle. We had the first one in verse 2, three steps to deal with trials. Consider it pure joy when facing trials. Know that the testing of faith produces endurance and allow endurance to have its perfect result. Verses 3 to 4, we had three results of trials. It purifies our faith, produces patience, and produces maturity. In verse 4, we have three results of endurance. Be perfect, be complete, be lacking nothing. In verse 14 and 15, we have three metaphors about temptations. A fishing metaphor, a birth metaphor, and a death metaphor. In verse 19, we had three requirements for accepting the scriptures. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. And now we have three examples of true religion. In verse 25 and 26, control of the tongue care for the helpless, and consecrate oneself from worldliness. So the first example of true religion is is by controlling the tongue. Verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Again, the first example of true religion is by controlling the tongue. James puts forth the example in the negative. A believer who does not bridle his tongue deceives his own heart. Now the term bridle, geo, means to govern, direct, or restrain. A bridle, along with a bit, is used to control and direct a horse. Here in James 1.27, he uses the term as a picture for controlling the tongue. Later in James 3.2, he reveals that if one cannot control their tongue... They cannot bridle or control their whole body. Now there are no other usages of this term in the New Testament, but the bridle is used as a picture of control in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 19.28 Because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance has come to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Isaiah 30, verse 28, His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the people the bridle which leads to ruin. That the tongue needs to be bridled typifies the tongue as a wild, uncontrolled horse. The term tongue, glossa, as used by James, however, is not referring to the organ located in one's mouth. Instead, the term tongue, glossa, refers to one's language or speech. The control of one's speech is a major theme of the Old Testament. Proverbs thirteen three, The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 17, 27, and 28. He who restrains his word has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Now, James states that the tongue, or one's speech, is to be controlled, not stifled. Because not all language is bad. But if you're unsure of what uncontrolled language is, Psalm 34.13 states that it is any speech that is evil or deceitful. Psalm 34.13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Now, to determine whether language is evil, ask the following three questions. One... Does it blaspheme God? Is what you're saying blasphemous to God? Two, does it make light of sin? Does it make light of sin? Is what you're saying joking about sin? And three, does it criticize or tear down others? Does it criticize or tear down others? That would be evil speech. Now by deceitful, many will simply assume that the psalmist is speaking of lies. However, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8 and 9, Jesus, quoting Isaiah 29, 13, stated, "This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, but in vain they do worship me. Jesus' point is that even if someone has praises or Bible verses coming from their lips, they can be deceitful because they're inwardly tolerating sin. In other words, even though their words sound good, They're actually evil and deceitful. And as a result, their worship or religion is worthless or futile. So friend, you may not be lying per se, but if one thing's coming out of your mouth and another thing out of your life, guess what? Your words are deceitful. Let me ask you, believer, is what's coming out of your mouth evil or deceitful. See, a believer's inability to control their words means that he deceives his own heart. You know, previously James warned us not to be deceived about God's character, James 1.13 and 16, or to be deceived about the character of God's word, chapter 1, verse 22. Now, we should not be deceived by our own character. The verb deceives, apatao, means to be misled or believe in untruth. This verb is in the present tense denoting an ongoing issue. That these individuals are continually deceiving or misleading themselves implies they are continually failing to control their tongue. Paul used the verb apatao in Ephesians 5, 6, warning us not to allow anyone to deceive us with empty words. The term empty, kenos, means vain or worthless. Believers can be misled by the vain or worthless words of false teachers? How much worse is it that we would be misled by our own vain or worthless words? Friend, if you refuse to control your language, you've not only deceived yourself about your character, but your religion is worthless. It's futile and it's fruitless. That is, your worship is idolatrous. How many of you partake in worship, assuming you're pleasing God, but in reality, your worship is rejected by God because your speech is out of control? True religion is doing God's law by controlling our tongues. To that end, we would do well, believer, to invoke David's prayer in Psalm 141, 1-3. O Lord, I call upon you. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. As well, believers, we must remove all filthiness and wickedness... From our lives, because what comes out of our mouths reveals what's in our hearts. Mark chapter 7, verse 20 to 23. He was saying, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Now, the second example of true religion is by caring for the helpless. Verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Let's pause there. Again, the second example of true religion is by caring for the helpless. James' second example is put forth in the positive. Visit orphans and widows in their distress. The verb visit means to examine or inspect. Now, in order to understand the proper application of this verb, we must remember that the original readers were Jewish believers. That said, the Jewish usage of the verb visit does not refer to making a social call, but rather to in care for and supply the needs of someone. The verb is also in the present tense denoting that such cares to be continual or ongoing. The term distress... The ellipsis refers to a group of people who are oppressed physically, or mentally, or socially, or economically. In almost every society, orphans and widows are some of the most helpless or oppressed classes of people. In the world of the New Testament, widows were very oppressed because they had no inheritance. The inheritance was given to the eldest child. And as such, widows either begged, sold themselves into slavery, or died of starvation. James uses orphans and widows as representative of all helpless people, including immigrants and the poor, as we'll see from God's law. Now you may be wondering, well, why didn't he include immigrants and the poor then? Well, as to why he didn't mention the immigrants or the poor, James 1.1 reveals that he was writing to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. In other words, his original readers were immigrants or refugees, displaced from their homeland, living under occupation and oppression, and as such were poor. So he didn't need to tell them what to do in that case. They were already in that state. Now God has a distinct concern for the helpless. Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely, and he leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. In the law, God commanded his people to care for immigrants, orphans, widows, and the poor. Exodus 22, verse 21, 22, and 25. You shall not wrong a stranger, that's an immigrant or an alien, or oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan if you lend up money to my people, to the poor among you. You are not to act as a creditor to him. You should not charge him interest. Deuteronomy 10, 18, and 19. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien. Deuteronomy 14.29, The alien, the orphan, the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Now one way in which Israel was to care for the helpless was by not gleaning the corners of their own field. Leviticus 23.22, When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleanings of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. See, leaving the corners ungleaned allowed the helpless, widows, orphans, aliens, etc., to come and glean for themselves. How damning is this example to the modern culture where greed is king? And it's every man for themselves. And if a believer, my friend, if you see nothing wrong with that philosophy, that it's every man for themselves and greet his king, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you and grant you repentance. Additionally, as a side note here, notice that God never intended for human government to take care of people's basic needs. He commanded people to take care of one another's basic needs. The prophets continued emphasizing the importance of caring for the helpless and rebuking those who refused. Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Jeremiah 7, 5-7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, then I'll let you dwell in this place. Zechariah 7 and verse 10, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, and practice kindness and compassion, each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Jesus went on to announce judgment upon the Pharisees for their failure to care for the helpless. Mark chapter 12, verse 38 and 40. In his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief seats in the synagogue and places of honors and banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now the apostolic church took seriously the issue of caring for the helpless. In the days following Pentecost, when the church was birthed, Luke records in Acts two forty-five that there was such care for one another that they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Caring for the helpless continued so that, according to Acts chapter four, verse thirty-four to thirty-five, there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as had need. Such a practice seems radical to Western Christianity, doesn't it? But yet it's that radical behavior that God commands of his people. True religion is caring for the helpless. When certain widows were overlooked, the apostles addressed the situation with the appointment of deacons. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation. See, the particular need of these widows involved the daily provision of food. These widows either had no immediate family to provide for their deeds, or their immediate family was unable due to poverty. Some asked why the apostles didn't do the job themselves. Peter explained their primary responsibility was to commit themselves to prayer and the ministry of God's Word. That's not to say that Peter and the apostles did not care for the helpless. Certainly they did, because they obeyed God's law. But it wasn't their primary task. So they appointed deacons and later deaconesses to help oversee this ministry. And that they oversaw the ministry implies that they were not doing this ministry on their own. In other words, they were leading and directing others in caring for the widow's needs. See, friends, it is ultimately all of us, it's all of our duty to care for the needs of the helpless. First in our family, then in our church, and finally in the world. One or two people cannot shoulder this responsibility on their own. Every believer is to care for the needs of those who who God has placed in their path. And if you fail to care for the helpless, or worse, afflict the helpless, you will receive the anger and wrath of God. Exodus twenty-two, twenty-three to 24 If you afflict the stranger, the poor, the widow, or the orphan at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Deuteronomy 27, 19, Cursed is he who distorts the justice due to an alien, orphan, or widow. Believers, we've got to do some serious soul searching, don't we? James' exhortation to care for the helpless is a call to accountability. Every believer, every one of you, should be caring for the helpless in your path by responding to their genuine needs in Christ's love and the Holy Spirit's power. How often are you guilty of railing against pastor so-and-so and deacon something or other who didn't care about a particular person? I say this before casting the first stone. James admonishes all of us to minister to the genuine needs of others, particularly widows, orphans, or others who are helpless. 1 John three sixteen to 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. You see, my friends, caring for the helpless is the greatest demonstration of love. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Failure to carry out this duty invalidates your claim of faith before a lost and dying world. Now, here in the West, few of us would debate the need to care for widows, orphans, or even the poor. But when the the issue of immigration or refugees arises, a majority of Christians, maybe even some of you listening, book and reject any discussion as to how to meet their needs. i got to tell you, this is nothing new in the West, by the way. In 1751, Benjamin Franklin wrote a pamphlet entitled, Observations Concerning the Increase of Mankind, Bemoaning the Influx of German Immigrants into Pennsylvania he claimed that they would never adopt the English language or culture. And his biggest issue against the Germans was they were not white enough. He says, the number of purely white people in the world is proportionally very small. In Europe, the Spaniards, Italians, French, Russians, and Swedes are generally of what we call a swarthy complexion, as are the Germans also. I could wish the numbers of whites were increased. I am partial to the complexion of my country. During the late 19th century, early 20th century, many Irish immigrants came to America. Accusations were hurled that they were criminals and rapists. Sadly, these accusations are still being hurled against immigrants today by many, including Christians. Looking at immigration through a biblical lens is not a referendum for open borders. Governments have a duty to secure their borders and create laws governing immigrants and refugees. Where there are bad laws, they need to be replaced with good laws. That said, however, believers, we must heed three principles regarding immigrants and refugees. First, we must think biblically about immigrants and refugees. In other words, the Holy Spirit and Scripture should mold our thinking, not political parties, talk radio, or cable news networks. Second, We cannot stereotype an entire people group. Just because someone is not white or does not speak English does not make them a criminal. Jesus was not white and did not speak English and he certainly is not a criminal. Do not be like Haman who wanted to wipe out all the Jews because one Jew offended him. While some immigrants or refugees may be evil, many people born in the United States are also evil. All white or black people are not evil because a small percentage are. And as that carries forward, not all immigrants or refugees are evil because of a few. And third, immigrants and refugees are sinners who need the gospel. Believers have been commissioned to go and make disciples of all people groups. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Where would the 21st century church be had the gospel not been given to the immigrants and refugees of the first century? And if the Western church will not go to them, perhaps then God is bringing them here to us in the West. You know, the reality is that the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant church is dying. Nevertheless, Christianity is thriving amongst non-Anglo-Saxon people groups. Perhaps if the Anglo-Saxon Protestant churches look to reach other people groups, then perhaps in shuttering churches, churches would be thriving and multiplying. I challenge you to ask yourself this question. How effective would the church be today if we were guided by biblical principles and precepts instead of political parties? Remember that God the Father tests the truthfulness of our religion by how we care for the helpless. Matthew 25, 34-40. Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, that to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Believers, we need to consider how you and I, how we would rank on God's religious test, based on the help you provide to the helpless, such as widows, orphans, immigrants, refugees, disabled or homeless. How would you rank? True religion is doing God's law by meeting the needs of the helpless. Finally, the third example of true religion is by consecrating oneself from worldliness. Verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to keep oneself unstained by the world again his third example is in the positive keep yourself unstained by the world in the greek text the term unstained is the is in the emphatic position and the text literally reads this way unstained himself to keep from the world the term unstained asphalos means to be unsoiled Describes someone as free of moral defects being unstained means that you are morally pure. In the Greek, the verb to keep, tereo, is enjoined to the preposition by. apo. The preposition apo is what we call a preposition of location, meaning from or away from. And when the verb keep is enjoined to that preposition, it means to keep away from or to keep in safety, preserve or conserve someone from something. That something which we must be preserved from, is the world. Now the term world, cosmos, refers to the world system under Satan's control. Ephesians 2.2 2. In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, in the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. What Paul refers to here is the course of this world, or worldliness, is a system of ungodliness that opposes God. Worldliness loves the system of ungodliness and the things associated with it. 1 John 2, 15-16, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Loving the world or the things of the world means sacrificing oneself for the things that are ungodly or in opposition to God. How about it, believer? Do you sacrifice for those things? Do you devote yourself to those things? Believer, we are to keep ourselves safe from worldliness and ungodliness. And that, that we accomplish this by remaining unstained or morally pure. And God's law makes clear what is morally pure or impure. So by obeying God's law, we can remain unstained and protect ourselves from worldliness. Now the necessity of consecrating ourselves against worldliness is rooted in the command of Leviticus 11.44. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. Consecrate, kadas, means to set yourself apart by means of religious rites or rules. God commanded his people to set themselves apart from the ungodly culture around them by following his law. That Peter repeats this command in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 implies that God's injunction has not changed. Paul drove home this same point to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17, Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 11. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. To come out and be separate means to consecrate yourself against ungodliness and worldliness. Contextually, the command, come out and be separate, is part of a pericope found in 2 Corinthians six, fourteen to 18 that deals with believers and unbelievers not being bound or yoked together. Now I know many are quick to apply this passage to marriage, however that's not the context. Scripture does teach elsewhere that believers should only seek to marry in the Lord, that is to marry believers. But in 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18, Paul draws upon an illustration from Deuteronomy 22.10 which forbids the plowing with two different livestock. You should not plow with an ox and donkey together. Paul used the analogy to teach that believers are not to be joined together in spiritual endeavors with unbelievers because believers are spiritual and unbelievers are worldly. When the spiritual and worldly join together... God is robbed of his glory and our testimony is tarnished. Therefore, we are to come out and be separate or consecrated from those who would influence us to worldliness. True religion does God's law by consecrating oneself from worldliness. My friends, empty religion has the right doctrine but lacks application. True religion has right doctrine and applies that doctrine to life. Empty religion was the problem of the Pharisees. They appeared righteous, but their righteousness was only skin deep. That's why Jesus told the disciples that their righteousness had to exceed that of the Pharisees. Matthew 5.20 I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is, my friends, biblical righteousness is righteous in word and deed. How many of you are making an empty show of religious devotion. Do not be deceived. Do not think that God doesn't see through your charade. Man, if you can't control your tongue, and if you're not caring for the helpless, and you're not constraining yourself from worldliness, I got news for you. Your religion is empty. Believer, your religion is only true or genuine if you are a doer of God's law. God demands specific actions that confirm the reality of your religiosity. It is not enough to claim to be righteous. God wants to see your righteousness. Attending worship services, saying prayers, reading the scriptures, albeit important, are no substitute for service to God. God desires worship that is lived out in our daily living. And when it is, you will control your tongue. You will care for the helpless. And you will consecrate yourself from worldliness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we come and we ask you to help us to this end. Father, we confess that More often than not, our religion is empty. It's worthless. It's futile. We're going through the motions. We go to church. We say our prayers. We read our Bible. But it ends there. And Father, it's got to go beyond that. We can't just be hearers. We've got to be doers of the Word. And three areas that James deals with is controlling our tongues, caring for the helpless, and constraining ourselves from worldliness. There were three big issues for the early church and probably still three very big issues for us today. Father, I pray that your spirit would convict us in those areas, Father, where we're lacking. But Father, we just wouldn't feel the conviction and the guilt. But that, Father, we might be moved to confess and forsake it. And we might go on and bridle our tongues. That we might go on and begin to help the helpless as radical as it may be. And Father, as well, that we would constrain ourselves from worldliness. We keep ourselves from every wicked way so the world might see us and see, hey, those people are different. May they not see that we're different in word alone, but that we're different in deed. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.